0: Thank you very much. So I, I want to let you know that I, I resisted an important temptation last evening. Um, I've been thinking, obviously, about loneliness, and um, I uh, picked, well, actually, Ed read me, in our home... I'm reading and Ed's reading, but he interrupts me all the time (laughs) to read from books, which is good because we read different kinds of books, and I wouldn't read what he read necessarily. So anyway, he read from this book called Traces of the Trinity, excellent book. I think Harvey probably recommended it to Ed because Harvey is guilty of... A number of expenses in the Norman household, <laughs> uh, recommending books to Ed. Um, uh, so, uh, but um, this one um, begins um, a chapter on loneliness with this: One is the loneliest number there will ever be, and lonely is the experience, the saddest experience you'll ever know. Thus says. Three Dog Night. Three Dog Night was a popular band in the '60s, I think, or maybe yeah, '60s because '70s. Anyway, so I thought, oh, yes one is the loneliest number I remember that so I googled it and, um, and heard the lyrics and they've been running in my head ever since so I thought you know what a fantastic introduction to this talk but then I thought can I betray my husband by playing you a pop song from the 70s and um, and it just seemed like I couldn't do it <laughs> He even gave me permission, but I still couldn't do it. So you have to... But that was the song that was running through my head. Um, But then, um, somehow, when driving to church this morning through the cherry blossoms, and knowing that Vancouver is considered one of the most livable cities in the world, what are we these days? Two, three, one? Anyway, we all know. So beautiful, such a wonderful place to live, so lonely. Alexander referred to the uh, study that was done two years ago. I actually looked it up and read it. And it's, it talked about um, the, that the uh, identified by many, many people, majority of people in this survey was um, isolation and disconnectedness isolation and disconnectedness amid this great beauty isn't that sad I think that um, UBC you all know UBC a beautiful campus strikingly beautiful and it's a very it's a very uh, lively large campus you know the reason I do the reason I do campus ministry, this is a well-kept secret, is because I love being on campuses. <laughs> I'd either have to become a student again, which I've done already several times in my life, or do campus ministry in order to have legitimacy on campus. So, um, But there are 51 students at, up at our UBC campus in Vancouver. There are uh, 14,000 faculty and staff that's a lot of people how can it be so lonely in an institution that is supposed to be all about the exchange of ideas and a community of scholars people are profoundly lonely i i find this all the time in students and to be honest it distresses me a great deal recently in our um, international student bible study I said, so, you know, what did you do on the weekend? And one guy who's a visiting scholar from from China, here without his family as many um, international scholars are, he said um, he said I don't know anyone in Vancouver Um, so I went fishing I went wherever he goes to uh, somewhere uh, and and fished and um, he said, I would rather have been with people. Um, all those people and all that loneliness. Um, another um, thing that I found in this book, um, Traces of the Trinity, is this comment. Because as I've been thinking about this, I've been trying to say, why, why, why? This is what Ale- Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. Sorry, no, I thought I read that, but it's the great Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmiemann? I automatically read Solzhenitsyn. Ooh, that's bad. I'm glad I caught it. Um, This is what he said after um, coming to the United States, and it's true here as well. For years, people have rushed to America for an easier life, not realizing that deep down life is much more difficult there. First of all, America is a country of great loneliness. Each one is alone with his own fate fate, under a huge sky in the middle of a colossal country. Any culture, tradition roots seem small there, but people strongly cling to them, knowing full well their illusory character. Secondly, this solitude in America demands from everyone an existential answer to the question to be or not to be, and that requires effort. Hence so many personal crashes. In Europe, anyone who falls falls on some ground. In America, he flies into an abyss. So much fear, such angst. I think that's true. I think there are other other factors um, as well, because it's not just North America, it's it's the Western world. Um is the concept, the the philosophical concept of individualism. Um, The individual has been raised to such a level um, that people feel that there is no one around them. They are responsible for everything about themselves. This is a heavy burden. Um, Not long ago... um, uh, an Iranian couple came for dinner at our house. Um, I've talked, uh, I've talked before about, um, this. Um, and, um, they started, they were, we were exchanging information as we do and talking about our families. And, um, they asked me, um, so your brothers and sisters are all in Nova Scotia. How often do you see them? How often do you talk with them? Uh, then you have two sons in Ontario how do you How often do you talk to them? Well, it turns out that they talk to their children around the world, not not all in the same place, once a day. They were appalled at my lack of motherly love uh, that i don 't and I was thinking, what would my sons think if I insisted on talking to them every day? <laughs> that might be the end of our relationship <clears throat> um it, it's hard to be lonely in that kind of culture. When when I was in the when I was in Israel, I I lived with a, an Arab family in Haifa for a week in a small apartment with um, the husband and wife um, and three of their four adult children in a small apartment and me in a small apartment, and there were people coming through all the time. There were people coming through all the time, and. Uh, and when there wasn't anybody extra there, they were talking on their cell phones, skyping, or emailing, and it was the the um, the volume of conversation was quite high. And um, I'm hiding away in my room to get a little bit of alone time, and I'm thinking this is this is what the desert. Why there were desert fathers? <laughs> have you ever wondered about that? Because they lived in that kind of culture. The only thing they could do if they were an introvert was to go into the desert. I might have become a desert father, <laughs> even though that could be challenging in many ways. Uh, but in our society, no, it's not like that. I don't speak to my children every day. Um, I love them, I pray for them, I think of them, but I don't speak to them every day. Um, and so this sense of, you know, it, it's all about me. And individualism automatically breeds selfishness. Not only is it all about me, but what's in it for me? If I invest in two hours to prepare a meal for somebody, what's in it for me? We have before us the the um, the spectacle of uh, that—that's recently been in the news. Of um, you know, many thousand-dollar plate political dinners, mm-hmm. where you pay a lot of money to go and sit next to a cabinet minister. Well, sorry, I don't think it would be worth my mm-hmm. money. <laughs> but it's so that you lobby for your business, so that you get an advantage over everybody else. That's hospitality. That's a dinner. That's what it's like in our culture. And then um, tied in with this, of course, is the busyness that we all experience. Because if if I'm the only one that matters, I've got to take care of myself. I've got to work really hard. I've got to think about my retirement. I've got to make enough money for myself for the rest of my life. I have to work really, really, really hard. And I, everybody around me is doing the same thing. I'm in competition with them for a limited number of dollars for me to live on when I'm older. Um, so they're all tied in together. And then um, an interesting and important component of our loneliness is the value that is placed on sex. Um, so... The way to avoid loneliness in our society is to have sex. But not sex as it was intended by God for us to have. Which was about intimacy and closeness and commitment and companionship and, and, and being together for years and years and years. Sex was meant to be part of that. And instead we have made it into a like going to the bathroom. Necessary. Yeah, a bit of a relief. Yeah, whatever. That's what we've made sex. So the, one of the gifts that God has given us, not the only one, but one of the gifts for, as an, as a response to loneliness has been trashed in the pig pen. I know I'm speaking strongly, but when you work with students, you get to see this firsthand. It is so tragic. Um, so, uh, I, I may have mentioned this at another time. I, I, mention it quite often. There was a survey done, uh, when hooking up first became a term that's used for what's happening, uh, among young people, where you, where you get together for six, sex, maybe several times, maybe a hundred times, but there's no relationship. It's all about sex. And the, and Globe and Mail did an interview with someone, a young man, who was speaking about hooking up with a particular girl. And the reporter said to him, um, you know, Dad, what do you talk about? And he said, we don't talk. And the reporter said, well, w- wouldn't you like to sometimes talk with this person? And he said, yes, I want to talk to her. I want to have a relationship with her. But it, but for her, it's just about sex. Mm. This is so sad. This is so. This is the reality. Um and then um an- another component in our loneliness is what is meant to be the opposite and that's the social media. Um if you have 3000 friends on Facebook, <laughs> wow, how could you be lonely? 3000 friends, imagine it. You could spend all your time finding out what those 3,000 people had for dinner last night. You would get pictures. You'd get pictures. You know, your, your, your Facebook would be full of selfies. Right? You know, with wild animals or movie stars or cherry blossom backdrop. You could not be lonely. Oh, you see what lies we tell ourselves. You see what lies are out there. There's no companionship. There's no conversation. There's no talking about the things that really matter. Now, having said that, of course you can talk about things that really matter on Facebook, and some people do, but that's not that's not what it's for, and that's not what people expect. Uh, um, and I'm, you know, I'm like people do when they rant. It's always about generalities,
1: <laughs> right? So
0: when I rant about Facebook, it's a generality. Um, so um so we are lonely. Our society is lonely. So we're believers, we're Christians. Should we care? We're not as lonely as they are, I hope. <laughs> um should we just let them get on with it? They've chosen it. Well, I don't agree. I I, I can't agree. You know, um First of all, loneliness is a destructive force in our society. There are people in in the mental illness field who say that there would be so much uh, less need for psychologists and, and psychiatrists and counselors if people had one person in their life that they could talk with, talk deeply with. They could call them up and say, I am having a terrible day. This is the day that my my father died 20 years ago, and I miss him so much. They could do that. But instead, there's nowhere that they can say things like that. And so they bottle it up inside them, and it comes out in depression, in forms of mental illness. And so um, that's one reason. Our, uh, this This... The uh, phrase in the um, report that was done, isolation and disconnectedness. Those are two components for most people who are mentally ill. Um, and um, as a result, people around us are hurting profoundly. And for, in response to that, we believers must care when we see our fellow human beings hurting so much. And I think also we need to care because God cares. God cares deeply about these people. He cares about us. And he calls us constantly into a relationship, into communities. Um, I, I will, mindful of the time, I will quickly read one of my... Um, favorite pas- passages from ephesians um, talking about he, paul sets out in a, ephesians 1 and 2 and 3 the you know the great and wonderful truths about our faith all of the gifts that god has given us all of the blessings that we have in christ and then um, paul says um, um remember that at that time before you knew christ you were separate from christ excluded from citizenship in israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without god in the world but now in christ jesus you who were were once far away have been brought near by the blood of christ Uh, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is what God is doing among us. This is what he's building. And he wants other people to come and be part of his family, to be part of his household, no longer to be strangers and foreigners, to be brought into his family. And so when we care about people who are lonely, we want them to experience what we are experiencing. We want them to be brought into the very family of God to belong, to belong. And, you know, um, we're called to be merciful because God is merciful. We're called to forgive because God forgives. We're called to care about people who are lonely because God cares about people who are lonely. And we are called to hospitality because God is hospitable. Um, I, um, I deeply believe that hospitality is is a godly Christian response to the loneliness around us. I, I, I think that we have done ourselves a disservice by putting hospitality into the category of gifts. You know, some are evangelists, some are teachers, some are prophets, some are hospitable, right? They've got the big house, they've got the money for the dinner, they've got um, all that it takes. They have the gift of hospitality. Thank God for the gift of hospitality. That's not what I read in the scriptures. Um, the, um, I'm going to turn now to Romans, uh, 12. Um, Alexandra, I'm trying to cover three of the four pillars (laughs) of Learner's Exchange, you will notice that I'm not going to say anything about Anglicanism. (laughs) That's not because I'm not a lifelong Anglican. (laughs) Um, So, Romans. Romans. That amazing book. Um, Chapter after chapter of Carefully, uh, a careful theological argument, right? And and coming coming in chapter, um, chapter where Uh, chapter eleven with the great doxology, the culmination of Paul's theology. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor who has ever given to God what God should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever amen that's the culmination then what does Paul talk about therefore i urge you brothers and sisters in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god this is your true and proper worship that's our response so he goes on in my in my particular bible the the headings of chapter 12 are a living sacrifice what i just read to you humble service in the body of christ and then love in action this is how, in practical terms, we live out our faith. And tucked away, verse 12, no, sorry, verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Two words. It's in there. And if those were the only two words about hospitality in the Bible, I could, I could quit now. I've given them to you right you heard that practice hospitality not pray for the gift of hospitality practice hospitality <laughs> don't uh, enjoy always the hospitality of others practice it yourself but that's that's only the tip of the iceberg about hospitality in the bible so i want to give you talk about a few more things i love i love reading about hospitality in the bible i think i don't I, you know i'm I'm a transplanted Nova Scotian Mm -hmm. in Vancouver. I left Nova Scotia in 1971. Um, And I've always felt a bit like um, a stranger, a bit bit like a foreigner. And so for me, um, belonging and having a sense of home, they've always been elusive, I've always longed for it, and I've al- it's always been elusive. And then it hasn't helped that we've moved around across the continent many times in different cities. So for me, these glimpses of a true home have always been very important to me. So um, the f- one of the um, most interesting, I think, and one that it is so easy to let this one slip by. Okay. John chapter 1 you thought you knew everything about John chapter 1 I've been studying John chapter 1 with the grad students but we only did the prologue so uh, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by he said look the lamb of God when the two disciples heard him say this they followed Jesus turning round, Jesus saw them following and asked what do you want they said Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. John, as we all know, uh, de the stories of Jesus, right? Instead of giving us a chronological order, he arranged things around important concepts and ideas. Um, this must be important it's at the very beginning the disciples are, are wonderful for asking stupid questions there's Jesus and they've just been told he is the one who was to come he is the lamb of God he is the Messiah and so they start to follow him that's a good decision. They're smart, but then when he says, oh, "What do you want?" What do you say when the Lamb of God asks you, "What do you want?" So they they deflect the 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 um, the the question, the answer to the question, because they don't know how to express it, probably, or they're ashamed or what, and they say, um, "Where are you staying?" <laughs> it's what you say to when you're a stranger's in town. Right? Oh yeah, where are you staying? You know? Uh, so Jesus' first interaction with these men is to invite them into the not home he didn't have a home into whatever home he was staying in whatever place he was staying in whatever room he had whatever hovel, whatever he said come, come and see you can see where I live That's, that's the first invitation to everything else that happened to the disciples come and see come into my home because homes are important when we invite someone into our home we're saying come come and get to know me actually come and get me to get to know me in a way that you can't know me unless you know where i live and 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 gee that's so there we have it right hospitality without a home that's important You don't have to have a home to practice hospitality, according to Jesus. Um, um, Jesus um, feeding the hungry, the miracles of the the bread and the fishes, right? When we talk about that, we concentrate on the amazement of all those people getting enough to to eat. Um, I uh, students come to our home every Tuesday night and I always cook probably you know way more than I think I'm going to need for 10 12 students um there's rarely anything left over um unlike the unlike the crowds around Jesus there are not enough to fill 12 baskets full when the students have left um but um food Is so much more than filling our insatiable appetites for more food. I think that Jesus recognized that people were hungry. They'd been sitting there probably all day, but when, but it says he had compassion on the crowd. Compassion for their spiritual need and compassion for their physical need, and in in the teaching, um, in the teaching space, non-physical space, that Jesus created around himself. He was aware of the physical needs of the people, deeply aware, and longing to meet those needs. So that is Jesus, part of his practicing hospitality was caring for the physical needs of other people. Um, there are a number of of very interesting examples of um, the wrong way to do hospitality in the New Testament. So there's Mary and Martha. Now, I think I think women um, who um, spend a lot of time in the kitchen, do do a lot of housework. Um, I think we have always been puzzled by the story of Mary and Martha, because Poor Martha. Of course she cares about the what the dinner is going to be like when Jesus is there. Of course she's going care cares about all those dirty pots and pans. Of course she cares, because that's that's her job. That's probably a lot of her identity. And then, when Jesus says, "Well, actually, Martha, you've kind of got it wrong. It, it's not about the pots and pans. It's about." Being together—it's about talking. It's about sitting down together and giving each other our full attention. That's what it's about, Martha. Poor Martha. She had got it wrong. How annoying! You know, in my in my imagination only—not in scripture, but in my imagination—I I somehow have the feeling that Martha is probably a very plain woman. You know, often when there are two sisters, there's one who's beautiful and one who's plain. She's the plain sister, in my thinking, um, and yet she found she found her life's vocation in in her kitchen and in her home, and that um, that is not a bad thing. The the mistake that she made was not carrying them with the pots and pans because actually somebody has to do them sometime, right? Or you can't cook the next meal. The, the, problem, the problem was that her priorities were, were out. And that became the priority. Instead of all of this work that I am doing for this meal is about creating a comfortable, spacious place where we can, we can be Jesus' friend. We can listen to him. We can talk with him. We can tell him things, and he'll listen. And Martha hadn't quite got that. I hope she learned, and I hope she didn't feel too badly. Um, So not such good hospitality is hospitality that focuses on all those things like how wonderful is this? How, you know what? How wonderful is this? Can I make this meal? Um, I I had I've had some um, culinary disasters in my life, which have taught me that. Yeah, like Martha, I probably needed to hear. So, when we were newly married, we we didn't even have our our own um home yet. We were we were living in someone's house while they were on vacation until our apartment became vacant. And um there was a, a woman who'd come to give a give a a summer course at Regent named Dr Ruth Etchells and Ed had known her in England and he said oh you know we should invite her for a meal you'll really enjoy getting to know her and i said sure i was i was 22 and had never cooked meals before and, and didn't really grow up in a home where people... I, I didn't really grow up in a home where people came for dinner. And, of course, I had read Ruth Etchell's book. She's an English professor, and I was, I was really intimidated to meet her. But I thought, okay, well, I'll do the best I can, and I got a recipe from a friend, really good recipe, and it called for um, chicken, right, okay, you go to the store and you buy chicken. I can do that. Um, What I didn't know, because I was a new cook, is that there is a difference between broiler chicken that you cook under the broiler and boiler chicken, which is hen, old hen, which needs to stew for at least 80 hours before you can put your fork in it. So so I I got to the store and there there was, you know, uh, this kind of chicken that began with a B. Well, I had heard of broiler chicken from the recipe, so, okay, this must be it. And it was like, like 49 cents a pound instead of a dollar forty nine a pound, or whatever. <laughs> Whoa! You know, this is really good. So I bought the boiler chicken, and I treated it as broiler chicken, according to the recipe. And, and so we sit down, and... Um, pick up our say grace, pick up our knife. thankful for the food. you should never be thankful for the food till you've tried it and, and you couldn't put the chick, the fork in the broiler uh, no boiler chicken no, no, it was very embarrassing. Ruth Etchels, an absolutely lovely woman, said, Susan, this sauce is delicious.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, that's just as well, because that's all we could eat. <laughs> uh, the sauce and the rice and the vegetables. Um, so, you know, that was a Mary Martha moment for me, and we went on to have a lovely evening. I'm, I really did enjoy meeting her. I'm so glad I did. Um, uh, so, um, yes, it's not... It's not about the best food ever. It's about conversation and getting to know one another and caring about one another. Um, And then another uh, story about bad hospitality is... um, The story, uh, which in my Bible is... um, headed uh jesus anointed by a sinful woman so we know the story jesus is invited to the home of a a pharisee and it's probably a big big party lots of people lots of amazing food um and this woman of the streets a prostitute comes in and and pours out breaks a jar precious jar and pours it out on jesus feet and is forgiven or told that she is forgiven um and um, Jesus uses that opportunity to tell a, a story, as we all know, um, about, you know, people owing money, who, who, who is, should be, should be um, um, which of them will love the forgiver more. Simon answers probably be, begrudgingly. I suppose the one who has a bigger debt forgiven. Pro, Simon maybe even got that, you know? And then um, he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? What an extraordinary question. A room full of rich men, Middle Eastern men, no women. And there's a prostitute who's been making a spectacle of herself. Um, and, and Jesus says to the house, do you see this woman? Uh, talk about elephants in the room. Yes. Do you think Simon the Pharisee had missed seeing this woman? I don't. <laughs> I think she was all too glaringly obvious to Simon. But he, Jesus is calling on him to look at her in a new way. You think you see this woman, a prostitute, a dirty, filthy prostitute. You think you see her, but you don't really see her at all. And then he says, he really gets down to it here. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. They hadn't been washed. They were pretty dirty. Um, You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Simon was uh, not hospitable. He had the big house, the big party. He knew all the right people to invite. But he didn't know how to treat his guests, all his guests. He would have made sure that all the big people had been cared for. Why had he invited Jesus? Isn't that an intriguing question? Did, did he really want to know? He got more than he bargained for <laughs> when he invited Jesus to his house. And uh, in other other parts of the Bible, uh, we're told don't just invite the important people. Don't just invite your own family, the people who are going to pay you back. Hospitality is not about being paid back. It's not about I invite you to my house and you invite me to yours. That That's not hospitality. That's just tit for tat. That's just common... Social interaction, courtesy, hospitality, as is, is when you invite people and you have no expectation that they'll invite you back. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. That's not the point. Um, that's um, that's a hard that's a hard one to learn. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons that uh, we we hesitate to invite. Um, to invite strangers, we don't want to get, put them un, under an obligation. How can I? How can I accept your hospitality when I can't pay you back? I don't know. Interesting to think about that one. But my absolute favorite story of hospitality is at um, the very end of John, if I can find it. John thirty-five. Oh, no, John 21. Okay, so at the very beginning of John, we see Jesus inviting people into his room. Um, At the very end of the Gospel of John, um, we have another story about hospitality. And this time, everything has changed for Jesus. He has completed the mission that he came to do. He has shown people his father. He has taken the burden of sin on himself and died. He has begun uh, in, in, he has has passed the, the climax of his restoration of the universe so far. There's a climax still to come. He has passed the test. He's done what he came to do. And now he's leaving his disciples to carry on the work. Can you imagine leaving the salvation of the cosmos in the hands of those particular 11 men? Would you do it?
1: <laughs>
0: so the church, the church, the future of the church rests on them. Um, what would you do? I... The very least we would do is to write out instructions, how to run a church, (laughs) problems you will encounter along the way, godly responses to those problems, an instruction booklet, right? You're leaving the church in the hands of 11 people, none of whom passed the test. Talk about passing, none of whom passed the test they all failed they're only now beginning to get who jesus is and what he came to do Um, so so what does jesus do well the the they're out fishing how many of you have been out fishing through the night one person I, I I I grew up in Nova Scotia. I am the daughter, uh, the and granddaughter, and great and great granddaughter, and great 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 granddaughter of fishermen. And I've been out in the night on the water catching fish. And what before the dawn you come in before the dawn or just as the dawn is breaking you've fished in the night. And number one, you are cold. Even if you're in the Middle East, you're cold. And you're hungry, and you're tired, and you've pretty much, you know, had it with fish. Um, especially, you know, because either you caught nothing, or as in now, the, the the disciples had that problem first, but they didn't have it after Jesus said, "Throw your your net on the other side of the boat." You'll find some fish. Some is a some fish is a great maritime expression. Some fish. That's right. Some fish. They got right some fish. Those fishermen. And um, and then they come into shore. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, there with fish on it and some bread. Isn't that amazing? You're about to leave eleven failed men in charge of the biggest project imaginable in the cosmos and you barbecue on the beach and you invite them to come and have some fish and bread and I bet that fish tasted really good um, so um, no instructions Oh, almost no instructions about the church but there was Peter And Jesus graciously gave him the opportunity to repent for betraying Jesus three times, for denying him three times. And um, we know, you know, this is, I know you all know this, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Three times Jesus tells them variations on feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. So those are the instructions for the leader of the church. Fe- feed the people. And you know, we evangelicals, we love this because it's all about Bible studies and sermons and spiritual food. But it's in the context of barbecued fish and bread, a picnic given by a man who has no home, who is single, you know, the excuse, I I can't practice hospitality, I'm a man. I can't practice hospitality, I'm single. I can't practice hospitality because I'm homeless. Jesus practiced hospitality as a single homeless male. And he told Peter, keep on doing it keep on feeding people that's my favorite story of hospitality um, I do want to leave time for questions and comments because I know that in this room there are many wonderful hospitable people and I want to hear from you uh, but I just wanted to, to end with like se- several examples of hospitality um, first of all Hospitality doesn't have to be in a home. One time, I was visiting my mother in Halifax, and she had gone into a seniors' home, and 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 um, I was I was li- I was staying with her for ten days in the seniors' home. And when you're you know 45, it's pretty depressing <laughs> to live in a seniors' home. And um, Sunday morning came, and I went off to church, and and there was Grant Biggings. And Grant was studying in Halifax at that time, and uh, we were happy to see each other. And and after church, he said, oh, Susan, some of us uh, go out for breakfast. Would you like to join us? And it was an incredible gift to me. Um, I, I I hadn't had any contact with with christian friends for a number of days i was feeling alone in the city that i physically knew quite quite well but i was a student there but that had been a long time before and i i was feeling very alone and it was so delightful to meet new friends um to get to know grant better and you know it was an hour hour and a half it was lovely um hospitality doesn't require a home it requires a willingness to include people to uh, to listen to talk um, um, I have a colleague in Toronto who um, also grew up in the Maritimes in New Brunswick uh, was a journalist and then worked for InterVarsity and she was in they invited her to come and take a new job in Toronto and um, and, um, she hesitated to leave her, her little home in near Moncton to go to the big city of Toronto where she didn't know many people. But she, she accepted the challenge and we are all so grateful she did. She's in charge of our, our PR and publicity and she does a fantastic job. Um, but she moved into a condo, um, in Toronto and, uh, and, um, she looked around and knew um that she needed to create some kind of community in this gigantic condo where nobody knew anybody so um the first thing she did was to put up a notice in the laundry room saying is anyone interested in joining a amateur writers club she's a a, a a wannabe writer, more than a wannabe writer, but she's it, it very much wants to write, and she thought that that might be something. A, a small, a few people responded to that, a really mixed group of people, and and so they started meeting and shared their writing, which is a very intimate thing to do to share your writing. Um, with others and receive their feedback, so so that went on for a number of months, and um, a couple of other people joined, and then she decided that she would um, she would have a a kind of open house in her apartment for anyone in the condo uh, one one evening a week. At a risk, you know. There are hundreds of people there. She doesn't know who they are, so she did that, and and people started dropping by. And it, I was there one night when this happened, and honestly, the most eclectic group of people you could imagine,
1: mm-hmm.
0: really, truly. And um, and then um, one of the other women who works for Intervarsity in the office found a place to rent in that condo, so. That added to the community. And then, Lynn. I I still remember, she she said to me, well, she said to a group of us, you know, I I think probably God wants me to invite people to Bible study. But she said, you know, can you imagine a less likely group of people to study the Bible? And I said, no, I can't, except students. (laughs) And and, and and so she... um, she invited the people that she knew to, hey, would you are you interested in coming and studying the Bible with me? They knew she was a Christian, um, and so a couple of people said yes, and they've been meeting for about two years now. She said, you know, from an evangelistic point of view, not very spectacular. Nobody's become a Christian, but but we meet and we talk and we care about one another. Um, and um, then um. A a young couple, uh, Heidi and Mark, who who went to this church um, in the 90s um, before they moved away, they lived in Kitsilano and full of lots of people their age. They were in their early 30s. And they found that people didn't readily accept invitations to dinner. And when they kind of tried to find out why, they realized that people didn't know how to behave or they thought they didn't know how to behave at a dinner party mm-hmm. they had grown up without knives and forks and plates mm-hmm. on a table mm-hmm. maybe candles oh uh-uh, no they had grown up without any sense of what it's like to go to a dinner party mm-hmm. and so Heidi and Mark may tried to make adjustments they made it simple you know they they did they did everything they could, and they. But they said, "Well, you know, it's not. It's not so much about a dinner party. It's about talking and getting to know one another." And so they decided that each each time they did it, I think it, I think it was probably once a month. I'm not sure, that they would say, "We're going to talk about this topic," um, and um, a- invite people to come with some ideas. And they were, they made sure that uh, there weren't more than. Uh, for Christians out of a group of about 12. They didn't want it to be, a, you know, we're here to tell you about Christian view on this, that, or the other thing. They wanted to invite people into a conversation about things that really matter. Like, you know, what do you do when your dad in in Toronto has a stroke and he needs help and you live in Vancouver? Uh, things like, uh, you know, how, how, how do you deal with... with uh, homeless people on the street when they ask you for money. Things that are important in our city. Where do you go when you want um, to find peace? Those are the kinds of things that they suggested that people talk about. It was great. It was really great. Um, uh, in invite, Inviting strangers... Okay, so we, when we moved to Charleston, then, and South Carolina, um, and, I mean, talk about culture shock. <laughs> the deep South is another world. And um, so, and, you know, there we were in it. So we didn't want to just know church people. And also, my job, grad students and faculty, I wanted to get to know some faculty. How do you meet people faculty um so so we prayed and um one day we were at a coffee shop our favorite coffee shop kudu if you're ever ever in charleston go to kudu tell them you know the normans in vancouver and um uh the and um we were at an I so we were having a debate not an argument a debate I was proposing a new uh, sociological theory about Englishmen, and Ed was (laughs) fiercely resisting my theory. So we talked, and theology came into it, and geography and history and everything. And suddenly we noticed there was a guy sitting behind. He stood up, and he came over to the table, and he said, I'm sorry, I couldn't help overhear your conversation. And he joined in. (laughs) Now... The good thing about that is that he joined in on my side of the argument. <laughs>
1: um,
0: I, I was in need of help, um, and and so it turns out that David is a professor of um, at the Citadel, which is a military college in Charleston, not a believer. And after we after we, we talked for another at least two more hours, and it was six o'clock. And Ed said, "You yeah, know, well, we really have to go." But David, would you like to come for dinner one time? And I was shocked because, you know, Ed is a reserved Englishman resisting all the advances of Americans. Um, <laughs> and um, and um, and David said, "Sure, I'd love to come." So we ch- exchanged email addresses and we arranged a time, six thirty on a certain day, and. He told me he was a not a he was a vegetarian, so that's fine. So so I had a meal already, and six thirty came. No David, no David, no David, no David. And we thought, oh, you know, he's decided it's too risky to go to house of strangers. He doesn't, you know. And then about an hour and twenty minutes after we had invited, him, we were just about to eat. Um, the he he arrived with a. Um, A container full of very melting ice cream. And, uh, the, the old streets in Charleston are challenging to find your way around. (laughs) And he'd got hopelessly lost. Um, but that was the beginning of an amazing friendship. Um, and, um, when we moved, uh, from Charleston, we packed up our truck to drive to Vancouver on the hottest day that I'd had there. And uh, high humidity and thunderstorms throughout the day. And David, he, his mil- his expertise in the military was um, uh, like um, uh, arranging transport. And he packed our truck so that there was not one square inch of empty space. <laughs> and he sweated. We all sweated. We we it, it, we could not have done it. Without his help, and then it was very sweet. We 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 all went, or Ed drove our car. David drove me in his car, which had no seats. <laughs> yeah, to um, the 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 try the. Um, Rental place where we were going to get um, trailer to put our car on. So we drove the truck and the car was pulled on the trailer, and um, and so we got the, it all hitched up and we were all ready. We we're leaving for Canada, and and Dave David was fussing around like, "Now, are you sure you've got my phone number? You can call me if you run into any trouble. Don't forget that on the highway, you know this happens and that happens." He was just so worried about us. <laughs> it was very sweet. Um, uh, he, um, we had endless conversations about faith, endless conversations about faith and faith and science and and um, oh, a couple months ago, got one of his periodic emails and he said, oh by the way, I'm reading a book. I know you'll be interested to know that I am reading Screw Tape Letters. <laughs> um, who knows? David's a wonderful guy. I'm so glad that we risked inviting him into our lives. Five after ten, time to stop. <laughs> yes? Uh,
1: just in the slide about <coughs> sorry, something I read. They don't withdraw physically when they want to be by themselves, just inwardly. And other people sense that and respect it.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. I guess I need to learn that before <laughs> I go back. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, thank you. George? Oh, sorry, just a sec. I asked just, George was next, and then you can.
1: Yeah? No, I just wanted to thank you, Susan, for her very powerful
0: presentation. You're welcome. Yes. Did you have a question? No, I couldn't hear what. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. What, I couldn't hear what he said. Oh, he's he mentioned that Arabs have a technique or of withdrawing within themselves when the culture gets too loud and too demanding, and that it sometimes looks like remoteness, but in fact is a way for people to have introvert time. Um, that's helpful yes yes
1: when I grew up in Kersdale, uh we used to go to each other's houses all the time everybody just knew what to do but nowadays that's not the way it is
0: that's right mm-hmm. You know, there are many families where they don't even practice hospitality to each other. One of my students grew up and has a loving mother and father, good family, only child, and she said, We never ate meals together. She said, We were three strangers living in a house. They never ate together. I read a survey one time that said, it it was in one of the British papers, and it said that £950,000 had been spent on a survey to determine the effect of language development in children compared to how often they ate together as a family. Oh, big surprise! families where people ate together more than three times a week, the children had better language skills. Imagine that. Uh, My reaction, I could have done it for half the price. (laughs) Nobody asked me. Yes, Beth?
1: Um, It's it's interesting going to see new um, apartments, and there isn't...
0: Often
1: um, a dining room mm-hmm. at all. Uh, there is no place for a table.
0: That's right. You sit at a little and breakfast bar. You
1: at the
0: bay by a
1: tablecloth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know? mm-hmm. that's, that's how it is. It's yeah. being reflected. Yes. Yep. Yes. Time. One great example of (coughs) hospitality within our church is what Nora Nora. does. Yes.
0: Thank God for Nora. uh, Yes.
1: She puts a wonderful dinner on every Tuesday evening Uh with great effort of soul and without expecting any reward except the fact that she's she's, um, creating an environment where people can get together and chat and have a good meal.
0: Yes. Yes. Thank you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. yes. The
1: Swedish priest, and I'm Swedish, is coming here twice a year <coughs> from Toronto. And I s- send out, we sent out the message that we anybody else who could have them stay over for night over the night because it's lovely to get together. Mm-hmm. we we'll learn from yeah. Yes. Whatever. Not one reply. Yes. So I said, of course. So he's coming. This after We are having a service at the Danish church in Burnaby this afternoon, mm-hmm. and he's coming for dinner with other people now to my house and staying over. And I'm taking him tomorrow at uh, noon for, for on his flight. But you know, I I had to totally. Get out of my room and
0: clean
1: out my room and yes. the in my room. Yes. So it's, been, it's been a little bit of an effort this time. Yes. But I'm glad that I'm doing, especially coming to this talk. Yes, room, yes, so. yes.
0: <laughs> Thank you for doing it. It is costly, you know. When, when the reason people don't do it often is because it it is a, an act of self sacrifice. Mm-hmm. To especially having people overnight, I know what you mean. We live in a very small two bedroom ap- apartment, and the non bedroom is full of music, books, recording equipment, my files. We have three filing cabinets, it's, it, and we sleep in there on the floor when we have people staying overnight. And at the moment, there's not even room for us to sleep on the floor, so, <laughs> you know, it, it's a lot of work but it is so worthwhile. It so worthwhile. You know, and so so Tuesday when the grad students are coming for dinner, I occasionally, not every week, thank God, I occasionally think why am I doing this? Is it really worthwhile? Um one night or one yeah, one night um there was uh, so there was a girl who came to the grad grad group originally because her cousin in Toronto who is a Christian had been in the grad group and he said uh Christina you've got to go to Susan's house for she has dinner every week. So Christina arrived and she had this look on her face, what am I doing here? I don't know these people. I'm not even a Christian. Anyway, she came periodically not every week for about 8 months. And then one day one night she arrived and it was one of those awful Vancouver nights. We can't even imagine them in the sunshine. Rain, rain, rain all day. You know, the tenth day, thirtieth day, maybe of rain. And she came a little bit late. Opened the door, and she was soaking wet. And she looked in the room of a small, our small living room with already, you know, eight people crowded into it. And and she said, "I've had a s h i t t y day, and uh, but I knew you guys would cheer me up. And." and uh, you know, what she meant was, there's food here, there's ca- there are candles here, there, there's, there are people who care about the me, there are people who actually care that I've had a bad day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, you know, it's moments like that that I, I realize, yes, it is worth it, yes, yes. <laughs> mm. Yes. My brother, he went to Nova Scotia because my my family's they're French Canadian. They came there 1750. He's talking with someone on the ferry.
1: They found out their are Paysans, like we are, right? Like that. They got food together for
0: picnic, took us over to Paysan Island, now called We Are Like. Hmm. And you grew up in Nova Scotia, you find it's very, very hospitable that way? <laughs> 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 oh, uh, if this is being put on the internet, I'm not sure I can answer that question.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> there are places in the world. I've lived in some of them, where there is a big reputation for hospitality, like in the southern United States. Oh, the hospitable self. It's it's a particular kind of hospitality. Um, if you're white, you don't invite African Americans. The only the only gathering in Charleston in a person's home that I was at where there were African-Americans was the choir party at our home. Uh, there, the hospitality is lavish but restricted. Um, so I think, um, I think that uh, societies like Nova Scotia, which are closer to the old days uh, when people were hospitable, are, you're more likely to find that that kind of thing. You are. Um, uh, but I w- I would also say that I know a number of people who've moved to Nova Scotia and have felt not accepted because they come from away. You come from away, and it's hard to get past that. I met a couple in a bookstore in Mahome Bay one time when we were visiting, and and uh, they they were living in Nova Scotia and from Vancouver actually, and they. They said, I I said, so, you know, do you have friends to, you know, get together? They said, yes, but none of them are Nova Scotians. They're all other people from away. I think we have to end now, do we? So thank you.